Phoenix Tales is a community celebrating everyday women overcoming extraordinary challenges in their lives, discovering the fire within and like the phoenix enduring the ashes to rise again. Each of you has a phoenix tale or a phoenix moment. As we create this community of women with grace and grit, share your own phoenix tale or your own phoenix moment on our website. We're honored to hear another story to welcome another phoenix. Today's guest is Marianne O'Hara, a novelist and memoirist. She recounts how her daughter Caitlin's diagnosis of cystic fibrosis and subsequent battle was the invisible navigator over their entire lives. Upon Caitlin's death, Marianne poured her grief into writing about grief itself, but also to write a fuller narrative of the beautiful, hard-fought life Caitlin had lived. Please welcome Marianne O'Hara. Welcome, Marianne, to Phoenix Tales. I always start the show off by asking just one question, and that is, has there been an event in your life, personal or professional, that was challenging that might have redirected the course of your own life? Oh, my goodness. Absolutely. My wonderful, beautiful daughter, who was my person. And how old was she when she passed? Caitlin was 33. And she passed in December of 2016, which we're coming up on five years. And I honestly cannot believe it. It's like time is a black hole, especially with the last two years of COVID. I can imagine. So can you give us a little background? Was it a sudden death or had she been battling an illness? Caitlin was diagnosed with cystic fibrosis when she was two years of age, which is a genetic serious lung disease, but there's never really a definite prognosis, especially when she was born. There are people now who are elderly who have cystic fibrosis, and there are people who die very early as babies. So basically, it's a progressive disease, and Caitlin lived independently most of her life. She played sports. She went to college, partied. she, (laughs) She had a great life. But over time, the course of infections um, damaged her lungs to the point that when she turned 30, her lung function was so poor that she really needed a lung lung transplant. And unfortunately, she had to wait almost two and a half years for so many reasons that I won't really go into, but mainly because there's a shortage of organ donors, number one. She's O positive. She was O positive and she was a very short person. So there there was a lot of competition for small O positive lungs. And um, basically she had to wait too long. She got her transplant, but she actually died two days later of a brain bleed from due to complications. So it was- From the surgery itself. Yes, from the surgery. We really had no reason to expect when she was listed that she wouldn't have received her transplant and gone on to survive um, and thrive. She has friends who have cystic fibrosis. One of them just, I think she just passed 12 years with new lungs and has been to China and works and does everything. So it was still. When you talk about she was diagnosed with this at two, did she have periods where she would get sick? I mean, can you kind of paint a picture of what it was like to care for a child with an illness like this? Because, I mean, a lot of people may not know about the sort of the outcomes of what cystic fibrosis looks like in a living thing or as a living disease. Exactly. And the name doesn't do it any favors because it is a really bad name and it doesn't describe it at all. 
So basically imagine if you kept getting pneumonia after pneumonia, every time your lung, you have an infection in your lungs, uh, tissue is damaged, lung tissue is damaged. And over time, when you are prone to frequent infections, the lungs slowly lose their function. You've got more and more dead tissue in there, more and more scarring, and the lungs can't work the way they're supposed to. You and I have very slippery um, mucus inside of our lungs. People with CF have a salt imbalance, so their mucus is... Oh, God, did Caitlin hate the word mucus? (laughs) (laughs) Mucus and moist, two bad words. Um, But the mucus is sticky and attracts bacteria, and then you've got infection after infection. So basically, life could change on a dime. We'd be zipping along and everything would be great, and she would, you know, start to cough or cough more, feel worse, and would end up in the hospital for a two-week course of IV antibiotics and lots of chest physical therapy. So it was we lived with chronic anxiety. I like to say that chronic illness breeds chronic anxiety. You're always waiting for the other shoe to drop. You can never really plan anything for every fun trip we planned. Um, we would you know, often have to cancel them. So there was always this sort of heightened sense of, of anxiety and living in the moment. That was the good part. We really learned to live in the moment and not really look too far ahead. I still find it hard to look too far ahead. So this was throughout her whole life, but yet she amazingly lived a full life, as you described in the very beginning, went to school, had friends. And I would imagine that the periods where she would get sick, that probably when she was younger, it was probably harder to get her friends to understand what was really happening. But I'm sure as she got older and as an adult, her close friends probably understood what was going on. So how did she cope with that? of the challenge of having a chronic illness at a young age. She coped with it really well, as so many kids do when they have issues, medical issues. She never liked to call attention to it. And we sort of brought her up that way, not to live like she was a disease. It didn't define her. A lot of people really didn't know. She looked completely normal from the outside. And I hate to say use the word normal, but she looked like anyone else from the outside. And even until the end, if she took off her oxygen cannula. She looked like gorgeous Caitlin. So that was hard. And when she did finally start to need oxygen when she was older, you know, when she was waiting for the transplant, she said, you know, I always thought that if I, the day came that I would have to wear oxygen, I would be so mortified. I wouldn't go out of the house. And actually it's a relief because now people know that I'm as sick as I really am. They can see that. So when she was young, a lot of times people didn't know. She would either go into the hospital and people would understand, oh, Caitlin has an issue. And her schools were really good at explaining to kids, but kids didn't really care. And then she had wonderful friends as an adult and they they all understood. But even now, some of her friends say to me, after reading my book about Caitlin, oh my God, like I, I just didn't realize how bad it was. And I would have met, because I had a friend who um, battled an illness and he chose to not share it with his friends. And um, when he died, his death was really, really shocking for all of us. But what he left with all of us was a sense of being so present, right? Because he understood that his life was on a timetable different from ours. And I would imagine that Caitlin might have felt the same sort of being so in the moment, seizing any moment as right there, as opposed to, like you said, not living in the future. And I would imagine that that would have enriched or deepened some of the relationships that she might have experienced in her life. Totally. 
She had wonderful relationships. Most of her friends considered Caitlin their best friend. And she she couldn't choose a best friend, really. Really loved her close friends so much. But they will say that her first question in an email or conversation was, "How, how are you doing? And she really did care and want to hear how other people were doing and really didn't want to focus on on the cystic fibrosis at all. So you said that it's been five years since she passed. And can you just give us a little bit of a a sense of how these five years have, I mean, I know that grief has a lot of ups and downs. And if you could just sort of give us a picture of what it's been like for you. Yeah, for me. And that's certainly one thing I've, I've learned is that everybody's grief journey is, is their own. It was, so horrible. I let myself think about it when she was growing up that, you know, I knew this day would might come. I probably was going to outlive her, but I always, that was one thing I could push off into the future. And I always uh, hoped it wouldn't really happen. And anytime I did let myself sort of close my eyes and wince and think about it before she died, um, I, I was so unbearable. I thought I won't be able to live. I really won't be able to live. And that's how it felt in the beginning, especially after coming off of really three years of her needing a transplant. She was got sick in December of one year, and it was three years after that December that she she died. And man, it was it, the only thing that helped me was writing. I had a blog that I had kept to keep people informed of what was going on while she was waiting for transplant. So we weren't answering like a million texts and emails all the time. And writing on that blog was the only thing that helped. I'm a fiction writer. I never had any real desire to write the personal but literally nine months after her death, I I realized that writing the personal was the only thing that mattered at that point. And that gave me a purpose for the next few years. So I wrote a memoir. Yes. Can you tell us about the memoir? And I know that obviously the genesis of it is your grief, but my take of it is that it's also a celebration of Caitlin's life, really, right? Absolutely. So can you tell us a little bit about the the book and and actually more importantly, the grief process as you were writing. I find that really fascinating. Yeah, I felt like it was really important to write from inside real-time grief and to make a record of it and to show people what it was really like. And that part of it has been very successful because so many people have said, thank you for writing this. You shared what it's like. What, and it doesn't matter what your grief is. Grief comes in all forms, as we know. And also to inspire people, it's me writing through real-time grief, but the actual narrative arc of the book is me looking for answers to the big life questions, which is something that has always colored my writing. I've always sort of looked for, you know, the big, the big questions. Why are we here? And Caitlin and I love to talk about that. Why are we alive in the first place? So the arc of the book is, is me in the thick of this awful grief and realizing now answers are necessary and I need to find answers for myself. So that's the journey I went on with the book and and I did it in real time. And I started it um, in 2017, finished it exactly two years later. And it was wonderful in so many ways. It all, almost feels like a blur to me in, in a way, how I was living, how I was dealing, the questions I was asking, the wonderful and amazing synchronicities that were happening where it felt like Caitlin was communicating with me and helping me write this book. Some of it felt downloaded. I used a lot of her words and uh, she was quite a, an old, old soul kind of a sage, like, like so many sick kids and people are. So 
the book was just this wonderful opportunity to to keep her close for a couple of years. And then when the book was sold and, and working on editing it and producing it and now it's out, I feel like she's close whenever I'm talking about her. I have presentations that I do um, where I, basically I, I talk to groups about legacy and how to find light inside the darkest days, et cetera. And so all of that is a way of keeping her close. And that's important to me because I'm never going to stop grieving ever. No, of course. And then because I'm trying to imagine being in the thick of your grief and writing this in real time. I can just imagine the the daily challenges or the moments where you felt perhaps your presence, you know, or where you were just so in pain that even to write two words was a feat for the day. In those two years, in that process, do you feel as though that enabled you to be where you are today? Or would you be here today, you know, still dealing with the grief, but in a more sort of nuanced way as opposed to just sitting in the pain if you hadn't written the book? I think I would have been sitting in the pain anyway. And instead of sitting at my desk, I would have been on the floor. So one thing that writing the book showed me was people need purpose. It's probably a prerequisite to joy and contentment. People look for happiness. I'm not quite sure what happiness is, but purpose is a wonderful thing. And this book has writing the book and now talking about the the subject, all the different topics in the book has given my life a new purpose. And it was really hard. What I mainly did was set a timer each day and I would write and then I would say, okay, I'm done. And then I could go on the floor. And I have um, a wonderful writer friend who I said, can I send you my pages every Monday and you have to hold me to it. So all of that really helped and the discipline of writing, but also being kind to myself helped and not expecting too much, but just steady, slow and steady, slow and steady, writing a certain amount of minutes every day, setting the timer. And when the timer was done, I was done. And it was a relief. And slowly it became a book. And, you know, there were certainly times when I doubted that I could do it, like any writing project. I actually have a little video of myself um, that I took of all the pages literally hanging up in my hallway and up on my third floor. And I took a little video saying, if this ever manages to be a book, I want you to remind yourself how impossible it seemed on this day. Once something is a finished product, it looks so easy. And we all know that nothing's really ever that easy. Of course. Um, I would imagine that caring for a sick child uh, impacts family dynamics and then obviously her passing. So can you kind of pull apart the ways in which your relationships might have changed or perhaps got strengthened through this process? I know that most marriages, when they suffer a trauma like this, I think the divorce rate is incredibly high. You know, a lot of couples will end up leaving one another. But can you tell us what that was like to A, have been a family caring for a sick child and the impact of that on the family life itself, but then more importantly, after her passing? Yeah, that certainly is something that happens to couples, to families. But, you know, we had a a 31-year history of dealing with serious health issues. And we kind of went through all that when she was younger. But my husband and I, we were married really young. And 
we, we sort of worked our way through all that. She was really sick when she was 11. And that was the time when I really thought our marriage was going to break up. And it was a hard time. And we did get through that. And so by the time she was older and she needed a lung transplant, we didn't really have any issues. Um, she had a wonderful boyfriend who was so supportive and he hadn't known what he was getting it into, but he was totally up for anything. He loved Caitlin and he was just wonderful. So it, it, actually in the very beginning of my book, I, I was so aware of the fact that she wasn't just my child and that my husband had lost his child too. And he deals with grief and loss differently than I do. Like I need to write about it. And he looks at me like, how, I can't believe you're writing a book about this. I don't know that that's such a great idea. And I'm like, we had been through it all years earlier and the tough times had helped us evolve and grow and, and be more tolerant people tolerant of each other. Interesting. So as the book got finished, did you feel a sense, I mean, as a writer, obviously that incredible sense of relief that you finished this project, which is, you know, a feat, but more importantly, did you feel a sense of some closure with the finish of the book in some way? Because you were probably sort of talking about the journey of Caitlin's disease, her growing up with this, and then obviously her death. So did you feel a sense of like, okay, there's a little bit of a closure here. I know I'm going to have the grief for the rest of my life, but I was able to tell the story the narrative, right, that had formed your life for so long. Yes. And the book is actually broken into three parts. And the last third of the book is literally me looking for answers to the big life questions so I can go on and, and have a, a meaningful life for the rest of my life. And that is what happened. So I felt closure of a sort in many ways. So I guess I would say yes. And I also felt great relief that it was done. And when my agent, she really thought Harbor One would be the best house for it. And, and they took it. They, they did everything wonderful to make it a beautiful book. And then when I, I recorded the audio book this last winter during COVID, and I, I knew I could do it. And I really, I wanted to do it. But boy, was I relieved when it was like in the can. Like, okay, I can die now. I've done this. This book felt that important to me that I felt like I just need to get it out there. So if I die, I'll be fine. It'll be fine. How was that recording the audiobook? I mean, I'm sure there were moments where you'd have to stop and take a breath. No, I, I knew that would happen. So in, I recorded it in February of this past year, 2021. And then I record, um, I read the whole book aloud in September and sobbed over my keyboard. Like it was so emotional and raw. And then I did it again in December again the really hard parts, like weeping over my keyboard. And then by the time I February came, I had desensitized myself a little bit to the words. And also being in a, in a box and having to be professional helps too. So it actually re went really well. And the engineer in the booth was such a kind and compassionate man. And the director who was on the line from New York was the same. They were just wonderful. So they had said to me from the very beginning, anytime you have to stop, whatever, just, it'll be fine. But it, it went really well. And my voice cracks here and there, but that just adds to the authenticity. That's amazing. So can you go back to, you made reference to the third part of the book was you sort of seeking answers to some of life's big questions. And can you tell us one or two of those questions that you've been pondering? 
where is she? Ah, is there more to life than this life? Does consciousness survive death? Does my existence have any purpose? And what were some of the answers that you think that you might have come upon? Especially to the first question, because I find that really interesting. Caitlin had been very interested in reincarnation research that had been done over the years at the University of Virginia and had come to the conclusion that uh, it made a lot of sense. And once she was actually gone, to me, it all seemed like, well, that was fun to muse about, you know, to ruminate on, but how can she exist? She she doesn't exist. So I I sort of set off on a, on a search for what's out there and what does science know about consciousness? And they call science, uh, consciousness the hard problem. So there aren't really any big answers out there. And also, I write a lot about the synchronicities that happen, and they happen to the point so often that to discount them begins to seem a little myopic. And one of my favorite synchronicities. Yeah, I was going to ask, tell us about one of them. There are many, but this one is a really meaningful one. But I was working on um, the book and I had 25 pages written and I went to a very small 10 person writing workshop in Positano, Italy. And before I left, there were 10 people in the, in the workshop and there were, we, I had everyone's pages, 25 pages. And I got to W, the very last pages. And it was Weil, David Weil. And I said, I know this name. Well, he had been the head of the lung transplant center at Stanford University. And he was writing, there was also a personal connection, which I write about in the book. And he was writing a memoir about his complicated relationship with the medical world and transplant, et cetera. So that seemed clear that he and I were kind of meant to meet. And we teamed up with the other person who's sort of the other person that I talk about in the book. And the three of us use our medical memoirs now. His came out this past year too. We use our medical memoirs. We have a wonderful presentation that we've been giving at hospital grand rounds programs across the country about why medicine needs memoir. And we each give three different points of view, the patient, the parent, and the provider, and all three need to talk to each other. And the patient's care team has to really be a, a collaboration. So that was a wonderful synchronicity that happened. And then there are just like crazy fun ones that happen all the time. And one of the ones I write about is, so what I take from that is that synchronicities do exist. I'm not sure why and how, but they do exist and they can comfort you. And many of them are very comforting. And I personally have come to the conclusion that life itself, the fact that we exist, that all of it is, is so magical. Nothing that you or I could create so is it really that much of a stretch to think there's at least one level of reality higher than this? I don't think so. I like to have an open mind and that has brought me comfort. And I was looking for answers for myself. And is there any intersection with sort of, I hate to use the word spirituality because it just sounds so new agey, but so <laughs> um, it's gotten a bad rap uh, over the years. But, you know, this idea of something greater than ourselves. And I guess that to me, that's always been about faith, right? And I think what you're describing is faith and destiny almost, right? Where you have those moments where you feel like this is meant to happen in this way. So is that kind of where you landed eventually with this idea of synchronicity? I did. The books, the mediums, the spiritual people, the the site, all of it, the, the old sages from long ago, they all sort of say, well, 
we come to this life knowing at a certain level, um, having a plan to, to evolve our soul. And so my feeling is, okay, well, if that's true, can I look back on my life and see how everything that has happened in this life has helped me to be a better person? And I can. So that has helped me. And that has helped me go forward from the present with meaningful things to do, like, you know, speaking to hospitals and speaking to groups and helping grieving people. And so when you talk about some of the other big questions, are you still in the process of searching for the answers? Or do you feel like that's going to be a lifelong quest? The answers will continue to change, right, as you continue to question. So do you feel as though these questions will obviously get answered and the answers will change over time? But more importantly, do you feel as though you have new questions post-writing of the book that you're still contemplating? Yes, indeed. And it's been interesting now that the book is out and I'm talking to groups and being asked questions and seeing how other people um, are just coping with with life and how hard it is. And so I'm really conscious of of being open to other people's points of view and how we have so much in common and in, in sort of taking what we have in common and sort of helping people like just by by talking about grief and in supporting other people. I think supporting sick people, that's something that has become important to me as well. I trained as an end-of-life doula at the university. I think, too, it's a wonderful thing. There aren't that many end-of-life doulas out there. They're just basically support people at the end of life, just like a birth doula at the other end of the arc. But what I've come to realize, especially from my medical talk that I give at the hospitals is, you know, I speak as the caregiver, as the parent, and most caregivers in this country are unpaid family members and caregiver stress syndrome is very, very real. So what I'm going to be doing in the new year um, with my personal talk is offering to when I speak to groups of people who have to help, not everyone can afford an end of life doula or find a volunteer end of life doula or even find one that they can pay for. But I want to offer some tips for helping to support people at the end of life because end of life in this country is a mess and people say they want to die a certain way, but very few people die surrounded by their loved ones in their bed at home. And I certainly realized um, with Caitlin, it wasn't until really this past year that I realized, wow, for, for as comprehensive as that evaluation was, no one ever talked about what would happen if transplant didn't happen. And we found ourselves in the ICU, amped up on adrenaline and cortisol, like having to make important decisions. And Caitlin by then was unconscious. I have a lot to say and hopefully to help people with all of that. And so that, yeah, that gets me a nice purpose in life. So in the Korean tradition, in the Buddhist, uh, Korean Buddhist tradition, they on the death or yeah the death of the family member they do a thing where they put food out they do a ceremony and they will drink liquor on you know behalf of the person who had passed and what you see is that there's like a stage for the ceremony for the 
the family members or those left behind to have this moment to reconnect, right, with this person who had passed. And I know that's so lacking in our sort of American Western culture. Have you and your husband been able to come up with your own sorts of ceremonies to honor Caitlin, perhaps yearly or monthly or whatever it may be? Yeah, all the time. It's funny. We had an unusual service after her death and we had these big sort of pictures of her printed and they were beautiful and they were sort of around this really cool like uh, chapel that was in the cemetery and what do you do with them you don't throw them away so they're kind of around the house and we love it and after we went out to the pacific right after the funeral and we have this one picture of her it's actually the same picture that's on the cover of my book it's a really cool picture of her holding fireworks on fourth of july a, a sparkler and we went out to the redwoods and a lot of people had sent us like religious artifacts when she was in the ICU, like, you know, a Star of David, a crucifix, you know, rosary, all these like beautiful sort of spiritual talismans. And and we just sort of hung them on the trees and with this photograph of her. And so we always take it with us on a trip. We're actually going to Kenya next week. Um, her best friend, while Caitlin was waiting for a transplant, just suddenly at the age of 31 was diagnosed with stage three breast cancer. She's had a hard road of it, but she's she had vowed to Caitlin that she would do something important in her name, Caitlin, and she had planned to go to Kenya. She started a resource center for students there, and right now she's building the Caitlin O'Hara Community Health Clinic. It'll be open in April, so Nick and I are going there next week, and we always bring that picture of Caitlin with us. I'm uh, in awe of how beautifully lit up you sound when you talk about her, but also just talking about your own process. I think... Um, that's a testament to you. I don't know if if I were faced with the same situation, if I would have the capacity to be that lit up or sort of be imbued with this light um, when talking about something so heavy and traumatic. So if you could sort of sum up where you are today, where do you think you are sort of on this path? It's so up and down. It really is. And I'm someone who's always dealt, had to deal with depression. I, I am lit up when I'm talking about Caitlin. And this is the part of my life that feels purposeful and meaningful. I, I, I feel like it's very up and down, but I'm okay with that. It's amazing. So we're getting to the end, and that's a beautiful moment to kind of end our um, conversation. If you could find one song that might resonate with you or you know, sort of uh, is your song that you would have on your soundtrack of your life, what would that song be? Oh, my goodness. Well, that was one thing that I kind of always knew in my in the back of my head when I would wince and imagine if Caitlin did die, it would be um, These Are the Days of Our Lives from Queen. And that song just always makes me cry. And my, I have a brother who's a filmmaker, and he made this gorgeous video of Caitlin's life for the funeral. And uh, we set it to that. And I just love that song. And I love Freddie Mercury. And so did Caitlin. So oh, it's beautiful. Thank you so much, Marianne. Um, can you tell everybody first, give the titles of both of your books, first your novel and the memoir and, and then how people can get in touch with you? Of course, my novel is Cascade and Little Matches, A Memoir of Grief and Light is my memoir, Little Matches. I'm Marianne O'Hara. I'm M-A-R-Y-A-N-N-E-O-H-A-R-A. And I'm on Instagram and 
Marianne O'Hara author on Facebook. Also, my website is MarianneOHara.com and contact information. So people can actually really, if they're very interested in reaching out to you, which I think they will be. Um, thank you so much for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Phoenix Tales, a show about women overcoming challenges and like the Phoenix to be reborn, their lives reimagined. Make sure to tune in to our next episode to hear another inspired story. I am Yuliana Kim Grant. The show is edited by Podigy. Music is by Ryan Pruitt. It's like a dream, so let me never wake up. I was so hung up on myself, just like a stick in the mud. A little time, a little patience when I got tired of waiting. Then I found that gem within me sticking out of the mud. And they gon' ask me why I do it. I'ma say this because we gon' be the best on earth, just like we be out in rust. Pass behind me like a book bag, hanging down a coat rack. Focused on the future, not that coulda, shoulda, would have. If you enjoyed today's episode, please leave your comments on the platform where you get your podcasts. If you think you have a Phoenix tale, please send us a note on our Instagram and Facebook pages. If you just want to stay connected to Phoenix Tales, once again, you can go on to our Instagram and Facebook pages to get all the latest updates.